Welcome to Making Bank, the show for Bankless DAO by Bankless DAO, where each week we highlight a project and a personality from inside the Bankless DAO. We want to showcase the work that we do and the people who do it. This is our story as we journey to become more bankless. If you want to learn more about what it is that we do, then just keep listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Making Bank. Hi, I'm Drost. Today I'm chatting with Mike Rabinovich, a.k.a. Comeback Kid on Discord, a self-described recovering lawyer and a member of Bankless DAO. He is an occasional writer for the Legal Guild's decentralized law newsletter and hosts its new podcast series called Ab Initio, which features leading practitioners addressing DAO and crypto-related legal issues. Hi, Comeback Kid. How are you today? I am excellent. Thanks so much for having me. You've only been around, what, a couple of months now? And maybe give me a little background I... on, on what brought you here and how long you've been around and all that kind of good sure. stuff. I joined Bankless, I believe it was actually December 15th, and I gravitated to their legal guild, you know, being a, what I like to call a recovering lawyer. And uh, it was it was a really excellent experience right off the bat. I, I spoke to the, the guild coordinator, Eagle, and uh, very quickly I was getting the help of another member there, uh, helping onboarding by the name of Line1917. And it was a really great experience. It was my first introduction into you know, of participating in a DAO actively. And it was a really great way to learn how DAOs work and the governance structure and all the other elements, including tooling and, and all the other elements that come into it. And that has led me to start writing for their decentralized law publication. I write an occasional column on regulatory fintech sandboxes. And what I really loved about the DAI environment is that it's a contributor environment. You can basically decide to do anything you want to do, but it is on to you to pitch it and get it done. And in that spirit, I, I made a grant application to launch a podcast and it was approved. And we just launched the first episode last week. And from then on, the second episode just uh, dropped a couple of days ago. And there's two more that are ready to go. And hopefully we'll get to, to do a whole uh, lot more of them. Fantastic. So I, mean, I am curious. You said you were an attorney. And what brought you to this space? Is Bankless DAO your first entry into what we're loosely calling Web3 and obviously all the crypto-related stuff? I started out my career by, it's in Canada, it's called articling. Uh, in the U.S., it's called clerking. And I spent my first year at the Department of Justice in the Toronto Regional Office, which was a great experience. I wanted to be a litigator because I saw it on TV pretty much. And after that, I spent five years practicing commercial litigation in downtown Toronto with a firm and then had my own firm with a partner. And our clients turned out to be pretty much banks and leasing companies. And I was not having a lot of fun. So... I, I really needed to do something else that I felt brought more value to the table. So I literally, this was Web 2.0, and I picked up a book called the World Wide Web Bible. And I got to the office at 5.30 every morning, and I read for an hour and a half, and then I practiced law. And then I started to knock on doors, and our first client was a law firm. So I spent a few years doing web development and, and online marketing, and in a few years after that, I really got enamored with the startup space and 
for the last probably 14 years or so, I've been working with startups in biz dev and marketing capacities, and it's been a lot of fun. My introduction into the blockchain and crypto space came in 2017 when uh, a friend of mine was uh, working on raising capital and taking a Bitcoin miner public in Toronto and everything was exciting and happening and then winter came and I had a front row seat of watching a real tumultuous time and I'm grateful for that now because of what we're going through at this point in time. So I've seen it before and I know that we came through the other side and I watched my, my friend gut it out and he raised more money. He's actually going to go public in Toronto in the next 30 to 60 days. So that was a real an abject lesson as to what can happen in a really young space at any given time. Yeah, previous to this, I was working on a data warehouse automation startup and I, I really came across DAOs seriously probably at the end of last summer and I did a deep dive and it just resonated with me on a cultural level, on a business level, on a technology level. And the first DAO I actually joined was Seed Club, but it was a pretty crowded bus, right? Which is great because they, they deserve that. They're great. Uh -huh. uh, and then I said, well, you know, maybe dust off my legal skills, which I kind of kept up over the years anyhow. And I joined Bankless and I joined Bankless because I listened to the Bankless HQ podcast. And I thought it was a really great combination of business and technology. And they do a really good job with it. So that's what led me to the Bankless DAO. And I believe in the mission. I believe in what they're trying to do. And I joined and I put my head in the ring and I started to ask for work to do and created my own ideas. Wow, that's outstanding. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And the fact, this continues to just blow my mind the level of talent and background and skill in a wide range of areas of discipline that have come into this space listening to where you've come from your your time working with corporate clients your time working with startups your depth and breadth of legal background and maintaining that man to have that kind of talent here in in these decentralized what we're hoping to be decentralized spaces and figure out this new way of working is is pretty exciting and that's one of the things that keeps me here is all the people around and that sharing of ideas and the bringing the different disciplines together and coming up with new ideas and paradigms and all of that. I think it's also a timing thing. It's, I feel that my skill set and folks with similar skill set that are fairly eclectic, these are skill sets that thrive during chaos and revolutions because you can wear a whole bunch of different hats and get stuff done. And the thing about the blockchain and DeFi and DAOs is that often the founders were coders and brilliant ones, and they just didn't have the other skill set needed to build it out. And that's why folks like myself and others in the legal guild and the marketing guild and the AV guild came together to really complement the exciting projects that are already happening. So I think the timing of it is, is always is very fortuitous. Yes, yes. There's been a certainly a confluence of things that have driven some of this. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting ride. So yeah, you're involved in a number of projects and you're talking about things that resonate with you. Is there anything in particular that you um, wanted to touch on today? So one of the things that excited me about DAOs 
is the community governance aspect of it. The idea that to do well, we must do it together. And when you combine that with a blockchain that is secure, immutable, transparent, that's a really powerful combination. And I don't think as a society, we've ever had something like that before, that kind of a powerful tool. So that really piqued my interest. And when you go maybe at the meta level, I believe that the greatest issue that we face is the inequality gap. And it's something that the pandemic only more vividly demonstrated and exacerbated. Yeah, I was going to say it and definitely exacerbated inequality. But that's, that's really something that captured my attention. I thought like, wow, we have a technology that can really let us be equal participants and, and we'll have opportunities to make a difference. And since the Industrial Revolution, the economic pie has grown exponentially. But sadly, the number of folks sharing in that pie has decreased and it's not getting better. So to me, that's something that needs to be addressed if we're going to move forward. And in my view, and this is my view, I believe that the inequality gap encapsulates all the other challenges that we have on a global basis. I think political toxicity is one of them. I think geopolitical conflict, as we see now, is one of them. And in a world where folks don't feel that they have an opportunity to create a decent life for themselves and a better life for their kids, it's not a good recipe. And I think that you know, part of what I'd love to see in any of the projects that I participate in is efforts in, to take actual steps in closing that inequality gap and create more equal opportunities across the globe. And some of the public good projects that are coming right now, as the L2s are rolling out, are really exciting and give me a lot of hope that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's pretty exciting to me too. I've mentioned optimism a couple of times because they've recently announced their token drop and, and the way that they're approaching rewarding participating in governance, participating in ways that are meaningful and contribute to, to everyone's success can then be measured and, and captured and they're doing it retroactively, which is, which is a very interesting mechanism. I think we have to design better mechanisms to, to incent in a more meaningful way. We talk a lot about sustainability, but we need more than sustainability. We need to regenerate because we have taken so much out of the planet. And uh, there's a lot of challenges we face, but, but we can't just maintain the status quo and stop the bleeding, so to speak. We have to to repair. I, I'm on the same page as you, absolutely. And what I look at is also is systemic challenges, which brings us to that one of my pet peeves, the accreditor investor exemption. Now, first off, I'm not a securities lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. So this is not legal advice or we're not going to the weeds here, but we must a little. The, the governing legislation that that DAOs and protocols and projects have to contend with is the Securities Act of 1933, one piece of legislation. And that really directs investments and stocks and securities and investment contracts and anything related to, to capital formation. 
Now, keep in mind that, again, this act was written in 1933 or enacted in 1933, and it's been amended many times since. But there's still some antiquated concepts in there that I believe are not allowing what you and I work on every day to really come to its true power. Now, the in accredited investor exemption, as it is today, or colloquially or popularly referred to as the Reg D, was adopted in 1982. And it was really a rewrite of three previous rules. So this was not something that, you know, has not been thought of before. And its purpose was really to enable capital formations by smaller companies without having to register and use that exemption to raise capital. And at the same time, make sure that we protected investors that are doing it without the full information as a company that would go public and file a prospectus. Made sense. Um, but then we get into this whole idea of, you know, who are we trying to protect and how are we trying to protect them? And one of the tests in these, one of the versions of, of, of Reg D is that folks must have a certain net worth or generate a certain amount of income, which for average folks is pretty prohibitive. So what is the threshold you, now, isn't it? Isn't it the threshold I believe, and again, like, I mean, it gets amended all the time, but I think that the most recent year would be 300 grand in joint income with a person's spouse, and they need to reasonably expect the same income level in the current year. And also natural persons who are credit investors, if their net worth exceeds $1 million individually or jointly with a spouse, excluding the value of their primary residence. Wow. Where you can see where that's that is a high bar. That is a very high bar. So the goal really is that this definition attempts to identify folks whose financial sophistication and ability to sustain the risk of loss or to fend for themselves under the protection of the Security Acts proves unnecessary. So they're looking at science saying, well, you've made money, so you probably are knowledgeable which you may or may not be. More importantly, it blocks out investors that do not qualify by virtue of those numbers. So my hypothetical example is somebody in their 50s who's had a decent, good, or excellent career who's got a financial advisor that brings opportunities to them. Now, often the financial advisor will call, in my experience, and say, hey, got this really great blockchain deal or great DeFi deal. And often the answer would be, okay, let's put 50 grand into it or whatever the case may be or 150 grand or whatever is allowable. Um, I, I, I don't even need to know more because I trust you as my financial advisor. On the flip side, you have somebody that could be in their early 30s, just starting in their career. They might have a mortgage and a couple of kids. Now, the chances of them getting that call from a financial advisor about an opportunity are fairly minuscule. Let's be honest about that. And then even if they did, the work they would have to do to actually get that investment done would be far more complicated than somebody who is considered an accredited investor. So that's a challenge. And the challenge here is the equality of investment opportunity that we all have. And if we're going to address this inequality gap, we must be able to spread those opportunities further and wider than we are today. Right. I, I mean, I can understand the initial intent 
you know, have some objective qualifier for whether you can participate in something or not. But as you pointed out, it's just a number. It implies knowledge, but there's no knowledge necessarily. Just because someone has has that level of assets, maybe they got lucky. Maybe they worked in a startup and got stock options. Maybe they won a lottery and suddenly one day they wake up in the morning and they're suddenly worth a million dollars. And they don't know any more than they did the day that. before. <laughs> it, it, it goes beyond that because let's, in my example, in that hypothetical example, let's assume that the 30-some spends every evening or every lunchtime reading books about crypto or listening to the Bankless podcast or listening to VisionWorks or listening to a lot of the good content out there. They probably know more about the crypto deal, they for sure know more about it than the 50-some that just is an accredited investor. And they probably even know more than the financial advisor who recommended the deal or the investment to the 50-year-old person. So I think that that, that really needs to be addressed. Um, but the, the, the key question is, is you know, what needs to be addressed and how do we address it? When the court started to look at this legislation, one of the you know, earlier cases that is often quoted is SEC v. Rolston Purina Co., 1953. We go back a long time. So this was a predecessor of Reg D. And the court decided that the decision should turn on whether the particular class of person affected need the protection afforded by the Securities Act. The court found that an offering to those who are shown must be able to fend for themselves. Okay, so what does that mean? How does one fend for him or herself in a way that would allow them to participate in those kind of investments? And that's the crux of it. And that's what I think we need to change from a systemic person, because not all the technology in the world is going to widen the potential investor pool and present these kind of opportunities to folks who are not qualified as accredited investors. Yeah, and fending for yourself, there's the phrase in, in this space, do your own research, the UIOR. Well... That's fine, all well and good, but you need to have the tools to, to understand what you're looking at, too. How do you make access equal or equitable, but still offering some level of education or protection? I hate to use the term gating, but, you know, what is the gate? Is it, do you just let people fail? Do you say, let's do your own research, too bad. If you send um, to the wrong contract address or something on chain and you make a mistake, there's nobody to call. There's no customer service department that's going to bail you out if you make a mistake. And I'm also concerned about a severe lack of financial education. I think the, issue, the financial, basic financial skills, learning how interest rates work, all that kind of stuff, the very basics should be taught. As, as soon as kids start getting an allowance or something, understanding what that means, what is money. And it's not core curriculum to teach people how money works. And and how to protect yourself against predatory lending, you know, go down the list of, of opportunities to lose your money. I will say this, that first of all, I'm not a maximalist. I absolutely believe that regulation is necessary. We need some guardrails. And I really believe that we can find what I call the golden path between regulation and innovation and opportunity to invest. And there's a number of ways that, that we can start doing that. A couple of the things that I think about is, what if we said that if you're not an accredited investor, we will limit the amount of money that you can put into, let's say, I'm just picking the number out of thin air, $10,000.
right? Now, in the crypto space, depending on the timing, this could be a lot. So imagine if somebody that's knowledgeable in crypto and spends their time studying it took $10,000 and divided it into 10 investments in 10 different projects. Now, this is risky. They can lose it all. There's no doubt about that, but you can also lose it all if you put it in Enron or WorldCom, as we found mm -hmm. out. So if you do that, a success in any of these projects this early in the game could be life-changing. Absolutely. And my point is that as long as they understand what they're getting into, and there are some guardrails, one of which is the amount of money they can risk, and secondly, they will have to provide the information that they have knowledge in crypto, or they have knowledge in DeFi, or they have knowledge in DAOs. So there's going to be some self-study as well that's going to help you make that decision. So I think if we incorporate those into an either a revised accreditor-investor exemption or a completely new exemption, I think we can get to that middle ground where everybody's going to feel like investors are protected, but they also are going to be treated as adults in the decisions that they want to make. So I think that's important. Yeah. And that's part of whether you want to be treated as an adult or not. Right. And to be treated as an adult, you got to do some work. And I, I've had these conversations inside the DAO. This is kind of early on, and we're trying to bring more people into the space and educate them about how the wallets work and how to be smart about security and all of that stuff. And quite frankly, we're trying to onboard people and bring our friends and all of that. And quite honestly, I don't feel comfortable yet onboarding a lot of people that I know. And I'll just say in my family in particular, they're, they're they skew older. I'm the, I'm the baby of the family, so all of my siblings are older right. than I am. And I don't want them anywhere near MetaMask. <laughs> I mean, I draw stuff. I feel, I feel their pain because I feel it, right? I mean, I'm reaching out to, like, you know, people in the Dow, and I'm trying to get myself educated, right? And, you know, I'm carving out some time in my schedule to spend a few hours just learning everything that I can about MetaMask that I don't know. But that's part of it. Yeah. And that's part of whether, you know, you want to be treated as an adult or not. Right. And to be treated as an adult, you've got to do some work. Right, exactly. And I think people need to understand the risks. And I think that's an area that, like you had said, that that we do need some regulation. I know that's a bad word in some circles. I am not a maximalist. I think that there are huge opportunities to, to completely destroy yourself in this space. And we need to mm. be clear about that. This is not trivial. I mean, yeah, if you want to just mess around with a couple hundred bucks just to kind of explore it. And quite frankly, to me, that's one of the best ways to get started is you got to, like the guys say, you got to use the protocols. You got to put a little money in, see how it works. And, and you learn real fast uh, what not to do. And if you do that with smaller amounts of money, I know that's hard to, to, to do on Ethereum because it's like, my goodness, the gas fee by the time, if you're only going right. to test it with a hundred bucks, it's okay. You just spent the 20% of that on transaction fees. So that doesn't last very long. And so using maybe an L2 or, or some lower cost chain like mm -hmm. Polygon or Terra or whatever, where you can transact and see how these things work with a couple hundred bucks. And it's like, okay, I see what happened it's, there. <laughs> I mean, people say like, what's the main impediments to this really taking off beyond the pioneers and the people that are just nerds like us? And what I say to them is education and the UI interface that allows me to trade crypto like I'm trading stocks and options right now on Ameritrade. And the use cases. That's, that's really. And the me? use cases. And the use cases. Right. The, like, why should I be on Yumi? 
what like what's 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 el what's polygon gonna do for me you know save me okay so how do i use it and how do i make money at it you know it this is not being articulated right. and that's a huge issue and this is when i talk to people about marketing and biz dev and they talk about all this tech mumbo jumbo say like biz dev is about building relationships and building trust so people want to do business with you and and, and marketing is about storytelling in a way that people resonate with because you know if you market well enough you don't have to sell people are going to buy it mm -hmm. right so these are two huge areas that you know you know it's so dominated by the technology and the protocols and the new airdrop and you know music royalty nfts and i love it all but is that going to onboard the next billion users of Web3? No. I don't think so. I don't think, think so. so either. Most people don't care about that right. stuff. Unless they can find a specific use case. Or, and I think that's why NFTs have popularized so much. Because it's something people that can identify with. They can identify with art. Uh, they can identify with goofy characters. And maybe, maybe it, it represents some aspect of their personality. And it's like, okay, this I, I feel like I resonate somehow with. Now... They don't know what to do with it often. Okay, now I have this this that's, JPEG that this image that's that is called an NFT, but what does it mean? And they don't know what it means. And then before you know it, uh, they get dropped some other NFTs in their wallet, and they click on it, and guess what? It might be a malicious contract that steals a particular token that they have uh, the lowest right. quantity of. And so that user experience and that potential for disaster needs to go away or be severely minimized well, before we get to a broad right. adoption. Just question. I mean, and I just don't find that, that the protocols are really focusing enough on that. You know, and I mean, I, I love the phrase of one of I, I think it was uh, rotorless in the legal guild. And you know the expression user-friendly? It's not, it's not even a fact of user-friendly. This stuff is user-hostile. It is user-hostile, absolutely. And I love that expression. So, like, that's so true. That's exactly how I feel. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally right now, if you said jump on, on Polygon and, and do a transaction, I could probably figure it out, but it ain't going to be like me buying some, you know, vertical calls or puts on something for tomorrow morning. Right. Right. That's for sure. Right, exactly. Now, if you and you just used a phrase that I understand, but uh, a lot of folks don't understand what you just said about, oh, yeah, I could just go do some puts and calls, a piece of cake, you know, sell some options, but you know what? generate some revenue. I'm. I'm self-taught. Yeah, exactly. Me. And me and then I and I got a coach to teach me for a few, like you know, some strategies, right? And th th this is what I'm doing now with with crypto. I'm reaching out. I mean, I asked you about wallet security. I'm asking other people because I want to know. I want to, you know, I'm like I, I I committed for like the next six months to a year to drink from a fire hose, mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that, <laughs> right? Uh, but I got to learn these things, right? And as, as you know, as, as I'm reaching towards them, they're going to reach toward me by becoming simpler to use. But we're not there yet, and and this is why when you like you say, well, let's do away with the accredited investor exemption, allow people to like you know, do their thing. Look, the other thing is also a cultural thing. My contemporaries, Web 2.0 contemporaries, have a real challenging time getting their heads around paying for culture, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I give the example that you'll have your crib in the metaverse. You're gonna have like great tracks it on beautiful pair of Air Jordans and your $50,000 NFT Rolex Aqua Racer. And then I say to them, and that was actually what they paid for that Rolex NFT. And they go, well, no way. Like, <laughs> why would you, like, what are you getting? And 
Okay, so that's that's a that's a big chasm to cross, my friend. Uh, you know, that is a big and, chasm and, to cross. And I'll tell you something else. You know, when I start to think about it, like through like looking backward lens, what I realized was that, you know, sneakers were the precursors of NFTs. Right? Mm-hmm. Just think about this. People have like a closet full of 10, 20 pairs of kicks that they probably worth, I don't know, 20 grand and they never wear them to walk with. No, they're too valuable to use. <laughs> right. But like, no, it's a shoe though, I right? Know. That's what it was built for. <laughs> so it's like, I get it. I get that people are, and listen, it, it, it took me a while to, to really, you know, I needed a lot of connecting the dots. I mean, I was getting it. I, my gut feeling was there was something there, but then I really had to get my head around it more. And then, you know, I said, listen, people, you know, the only difference is you're not getting a physical item, but you're getting the bragging rights of being, you know, you're the, the, the fifth print edition of the latest Peter Lick, like creation, right? Right, right. Okay. So, I mean, and it's, our value is going to be at the end of the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and this is a big chasm that people are going to have to cross. Uh, but I think that NFTs are far more than that in my view. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, I, I, yeah, they're relationship bridges, you know, they're really, but anyhow, the, the point is that when people see that at the first thing, they go like, oh, what do you mean through uh, right click save as? Yeah, but no. Right, right. <laughs> you know? So, anyway. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but, and again, it's driving the value and the revenue back toward the creator. And I think that's where Web2 and whether it's the music industry or what industry is they're rent seeking and the creator is the last person to receive anything. And the I'm music a huge industry. I'm in streaming payments. Yeah. And yeah, streaming payments, sure. There's there's some I'm a huge big believer in streaming there. payments. Companies are gonna hate it. Concert promoters are gonna hate it because all of a sudden they're not sitting on a float earning. Right? But you know, at the end of the day, I think if the creatives get together, that's exactly the way it's gonna be done. Because the minute I give you like X amount of dollars for a concert ticket, it should go to the creator, whatever their percentage is right. in real time. Well, and then the creator and knows who their little... audience is. They have a direct connection right. to their audience rather than going through the marketing department of the record label. Which is, they're not renting right. it. Yep. They're not renting yeah, it's it. A, it's Absolutely. a huge unlock. Absolutely. It's like being an Amazon merchant. You know, you're, you're an Amazon merchant. Yep. You're renting your yep. customers. So what do you think is the best way forward to address some of these issues having to do with inequality and regulation and educating the consumer and moving forward so that this can become a, a safer and more welcoming place for more of humanity. First, I think it's understanding that regulation is always going to be here to stay. So the question is, what's the kind of regulation that's going to allow us to protect investors and to promote innovation? and to promote equality and investment opportunity. And I think from a high level, it is really important that we are able to look at the world through the regulator's lens, and we're able to convince them to look at the world through our lens. And I think if we do that together, we can find a happy medium where everybody's going to be happy, and this could move forward in a way that makes sense. Well, that's a great note to end on. How can people learn more about you or learn more about the legal guild at Bankless Dow or get involved or maybe learn about more of the subjects uh, we talked about today? 
Legal Guild is a great place to ask questions, participate if you want. The Guild has an amazing publication called Decentralized Law. It's gotten some really good reviews. I think it's had tens of thousands of views by this point. So I would highly recommend it. Really well written, very professional. Hiro Canelli is the editor and he is just, you know, top of the mountain as far as I'm concerned. The other place to look at is, and I'd be remiss if I didn't pitch our own podcast called Ab Initio which is in the beginning in Latin, and that's a legal guilt production. And we basically work on identifying current issues in crypto and getting top-notch legal minds to answer them. Our first guest was Ben Melnicki. He was formerly the chief compliance officer at Robinhood, and he just recently joined Cross River, which is a crypto bank. And the second guest whose podcast just dropped is Evan Thomas, and he's the head of the uh, crypto business for a wealth management platform mm-hmm. called Wealth Simple out of Canada, and it's very similar to Wealthfront. So I would encourage everybody to uh, go to Spotify or go to the Legal Guild and see the announcement, and you're going to be able to download the letter on Substack or to listen to the podcast on your favorite uh, podcast platform. Great. We'll put all that information in the show notes so people have an easy way to access it. And just to remind everyone, this kind of thing is is what what is part of the value of the membership, being a member of Bankless Dow. And we have we have a legal team that granted you can't uh, just take that directly because you have to deal with your own jurisdiction and and uh, talk with your own real world lawyers and such. But the kind of information, the quality of information, and put concisely, accurately, and trying to address some of the larger jurisdictions around the world, the value of the information that's being synthesized is is really incredible how valuable that is. Is it the Legal Guild that did the tax guide, or was that the crypto tax guide? I was going to, I was just going to jump in and, and mention that there's an amazing tax guide that folks could could have access to as well. And one of the things that I have to say is I've been fortunate during my career to meet some really smart lawyers. The collection of brain power in the legal guild is truly humbling. It's it's high octane. So uh, please please visit us. And if you want to reach out to me directly with any questions or podcast suggestions, you can find me on Discord at ComebackKid or just post in the general channel of the Legal Guild, and we will definitely get Excellent. back to you. Thank you, Comeback Kid. I think this has been really enlightening for me, and hopefully it's been really useful for, for our listeners. And I really encourage you to go check out the Legal Guild and maybe subscribe to that Decentralized Law newsletter. It's, it's high-quality information and, um, and timely. Much appreciate you having me All on. Right. And that's a wrap. 